Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Our guest this week is a writer and journalist who contributes to The New Yorker and The New York Times, among others. AL Press is the author of three books, Absolute Convictions, Beautiful Souls, and his most recent title, Dirty Work, Essential Jobs, and the Hidden Toll of Inequality, which he joins us to talk about today. In the book, AL explores some of the professions and roles that society simply doesn't like to think about. He meets those working in jobs that raise ethical, moral, and even existential questions, work that might take more than just a lunch break to explain. Our host today is Rosamond Irwin, journalist at the Sunday Times. Here's Rosamond with more. I thought the best place to start is where you got this idea to look at so-called dirty jobs from. Where did that come from? Sure. So dirty work is, of course, a colloquial expression, and I think generally makes people think of unpleasant jobs like taking out the garbage or picking up the garbage from the streets. That is physically dirtying jobs. But my book does not look at that. It, it looks at dirty work uh, as, as defined in the sociological literature. There's a, there's a literature on this term. And in that literature, dirty work refers to something else. It, it refers to morally troubling activity that society depends on and tacitly condones, but generally doesn't want to hear too much about. The book begins actually with a little uh, excursion through that literature, in particular, the figure of Everett Hughes. He was an American sociologist. He went to Germany after the war, uh, after World War II, and he talked to what he referred to as the good people in Germany. These were not Nazis. These were not supporters of Adolf Hitler. Um, And he asked them, you know, just how did they think about the the dirty work that happened under Nazi Germany, that is the atrocities and, and of course, the genocide of the Jews. And what Hughes heard from many of these people were were sort of this on the one hand, on the other hand. Uh, So they began by saying, you know, well, we're ashamed of this. This is is terrible. You know, we're ashamed for our fellow countrymen. But then they would go on to say things like, you know, but the Jews, they were a problem. Uh, And something had to be done about this problem. And Hughes kept hearing this. And out of these conversations, he developed this theory. And and essentially, it was that... um, that in Germany, as in every society, there are certain kinds of, you know, what he called dirty work tasks that people know are going on and that are morally troubling, but that they don't raise too many questions about. It's sort of done out of sight, out of mind. And Hughes said, you know, this we have to ask how much of this has a kind of unconscious mandate from society. I took that idea and applied it to the contemporary United States, though I think it could be applied to any society today. You talk in the book about how we're effectively all complicit in this dirty work. Um, what are the jobs you're thinking of there? I mean, you, 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 it does take you, uh, you know, to, from the slaughterhouse to Silicon Valley, this, this book. Um, but let's specify which jobs you particularly looked at and, and how we're all complicit in them. Sure. So I look at, um, really in depth, I look at sort of four different areas. Um, I look at industrial slaughterhouses, as you mentioned, um, particularly poultry slaughterhouses, uh, chicken. Chicken is America's most popular meat. So when I look at the unpleasant and morally troubling things that happen on the kill floors of poultry slaughterhouses, you can't really think and talk about that without also taking account of consumer demand. Um, And that gets to your point about sort of shared complicity in this. But then I also look at some government functions, some some jobs that take place in, in, you know, 
government institutions or government agencies, uh, in particular, the prison system. America's prison system, as, as many folks in the UK know, is the largest prison system in the world. And uh, although prisons are, are sort of tucked away and, and generally exist, you know, are built in remote areas in America, um, they're built with tax dollars. And they're, they've, been, they've been built over a 20, 30, 40 year period with really bipartisan support for what was what were called tough on crime policies. So in that sense, again, the people who work in prisons, and I look at both guards and mental health aides, because uh, prisons in America are the largest mental health institutions at this point. Uh, they, they perform the job of warehousing the mentally ill. The folks who work in these, in these um, prisons are agents of society. That's actually a term Everett Hughes used, you know, the, the agents to carry out this dirty work. And I think prison workers are very much that. Uh, I also look at drone operators. Uh, this is a very different kind of dirty in the sense that the popular perception of drone warfare is that it actually is very technologically advanced and clean. Um, it, it, it actually is a form of warfare. Some people have used the term immaculate warfare for, for drone warfare. Um, I look at the folks who actually stare at the screens and watch the strikes and see the not so clean aspect of it, which is, you know, innocent civilians who are caught and, and hit. And of course, that's been in the news a, a lot lately with the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, and then I finally, I, I also look at the fossil fuel industry and people in America who work on the front lines of that industry, including in, in offshore oil rigs. Um, again, this is an industry that, that a lot of people say, oh, that's, that's dirty. It's not only for pollution reasons, but obviously climate change and fossil fuels. And yet America, you know, continues building, you know, roads and being a society that consumes, uh, uh, you know, a, a massive amount of um, fossil fuel. So in all of those cases, these are jobs that I think I, I set out to show are pretty central to the existing social order and really the way of life in America, uh, but that are also kind of concealed and hidden from a lot of the people who enjoy the fruits of that labor, but don't actually see the labor taking place. There's a sentence in your book that's really stayed with me, which is that economic inequality mirrors and reinforce moral inequality. And I just wanted you to explore that a bit for the listeners. Um, so think of the folks who work on the kill floors of a poultry slaughterhouse or who work in the mental health ward of a prison, where as I show, uh, there are so many morally troubling things they see and end up often uh, turning a blind eye to, kind of al allowing to, to happen, um, or drone operators who see the strikes and see the innocent uh, civilians who are hit. Um, who does that work in America? One of the central issues that, that has always fascinated me in, in, as a reporter is, is inequality, as, as you mentioned. But when we talk about inequality in America, we usually talk about you know, numbers. How much do people earn? Uh, you know, the, the ratio of a CEO salary to a factory worker's salary. Um, I argue in this book that we also have an equally stark divide when it comes to moral inequality. That is, who is it that dirties their hands in these dirty jobs? Who ends up on the kill floor 
of an industrial slaughterhouse who ends up working in the mental health ward of a prison or in the U.S. military uh, conducting these drone strikes. It's not society's elites. Uh, it's not the sons and daughters of members of Congress. It is by and large, you know, in it's, it's undocumented immigrants. It's uh, people from uh, deindustrialized towns where prisons were built, and now that's the main employer in in the locale. Or it's uh, it's it's women and people of color who have fewer choices and opportunities to do things that might distance them from this work. So in that way, I think that we have a form of inequality, moral inequality, that does mirror economic inequality. You know, and and it and it, it it's just shows up in in case after case in the book that that on the one hand you have people who are very distanced from these worlds who who benefit from from what's going on, but never actually have to bear the moral and psychological burdens that the folks who do this work bear. You're very clear in the book that they're not the primary victims of the work, but you do also see these people as victims. Now, people will say, but, you know, people have a choice about what work they do. Their choices may be limited, but they still have a choice. Um, what do you say in response to people who say that to you? I think there's there's no question that, you know, there are choices that people can make not to do the kind of work I describe in the book. But if I, if I can bring it to a very particular, let's just bring it to the story of this mental health aide, Harriet Kraskovsky, who, who opens the book. It's post-recession Florida. It's after 2008. The financial crash has really impacted um, the job market in America profoundly, and particularly in Florida, a state that relied so much on tourism, but also had a, had a massive housing bubble that went bust. She's looking for a job. She's got two kids. Her, her husband's unemployed at the time. And she, the only job she can find is working as a mental health aide for $12 an hour at this prison, the Dade Correctional Institution. Now, Harriet goes in there thinking, she's a little bit afraid. She's never worked in a prison before, but this is not her aspiration, as it is not the aspiration of, you know, folks at Harvard who, who study psychiatry, you know, who, who get degrees. Generally, they'll, they'll practice in different places and, and get paid much more. Um, but what she experiences at that prison is witnessing and seeing that the patients she's in charge of caring for are being abused. Uh, they're being denied meals. They're being physically abused and verbally abused. And yet she can't say anything about it because she feels beholden for protection to the very guards who are carrying out the abuse. You know, and she, she really learns about terrible abuse, in, in particular the case of one prisoner who is locked inside of a shower and not let out. And he ends up dying in that shower from scalding burns. And when one reads about that or hears about it, one thinks, well, how could she not say anything? How could she not quit? Well, if she said something, she feared she would be fired, as did the other members of the staff. And she also feared she would be blackballed, which she saw happen to people who had challenged the guards in this institution. So she ends up feeling she has to silence herself and continue to do this job without saying anything. And that story is sort of a metaphor for what happens in case after case in this book. You have people who kind of have these small awakenings and think, you know, I don't really like what I'm seeing. I wish I could say something, but they don't have much voice. They don't have much power and they don't have many choices economically. And, and you know, when it comes to how are they then going to support themselves and their families? These jobs are obviously stigmatized jobs. You mentioned um, the mental health side. And of course, 
your point is that the prisoners are often, and in mental health facilities, are often people who desperately need good mental health provision, but they're not being provided by, you know, the sort of people who are at the top of their field necessarily. But what about the effect on the individuals who are doing these jobs? You know, that thing of doing stigmatized work, what impact does that have on the individual? You know, I think that in, in all of the cases that I look at, um, you have what you know, the, the sociologist Richard Sennett called, you know, the hidden injuries of class. And this is really a book about those hidden injuries. In some cases, it can take the form of, you know, just not saying what you do to other people, not telling them. You know, this was true of, of not just the mental health aides in prisons, but also of some of the guards that I got to know. You know, they don't have the, the social prestige of, say, police officers in, in the United States. Um, but uh, in more severe cases, those hidden injuries can be trauma. They can be moral distress. They can be moral injury, which is, which is a concept that's sort of threaded through the book. Um, I look in particular at drone operators. You know, the folks in the drone program don't actually set foot on the battlefield. And so they are not exposed to the kind of um, life-threatening events that we associate with PTSD. PTSD obviously being very prevalent among veterans of America's recent wars. But what they do experience is this other kind of wound called a moral injury. And moral injury is, is about bearing witness to or participating in things that go against one's own core values um, in the course of, of doing your job, of doing your duty in the case of these soldiers. And so for these drone operators, you know, it was put very starkly to me by um, a, mil a psychologist on one of these drone bases, actually, who said to me, you know, that, that one of the guys had come up to him and, and said, you know, what is Jesus going to say about all the killing that I've seen and done? You know, and, and that kind of question, that kind of wound is not just prevalent among veterans and among people in the drone program. It's also prevalent for Harriet, the, the mental health aide, who wondered, you know, how could I, I wanted to come, she wanted to come forward, she told me, and, and, and sort of expose the abuses she'd seen. But she ended up not doing that. During the pandemic, we've heard a lot about essential workers. Do you consider these jobs, given the society we have, are these essential workers, but just the ones we don't want to admit are there? It's a great question. I sort of play with that idea at various points in the book, you know, and, and the subtitle of the book refers to essential jobs. I think that the jobs I'm talking about are essential to the existing social order in America. Uh, what I mean by that is, you know, I, I think that the drone wars, for example, were a very convenient way for the United States to, on the one hand, um, and this was under Obama, on the one hand, address the global criticism of Guantanamo, of the black sites, of Abu Ghraib, of these, these kind of torture scandals um, with detainees uh, abused. And, and Obama didn't want to continue that, and he made that very explicit. But on the other hand, he didn't want to discontinue the he didn't like the term, but really the war on terror, the global war on terror, and the right of the United States to kind of extend its, you know, force and potentially lethal force on a kind of geographically limitless scale. And drone warfare becomes the convenient solution for that. If we go back to Everett Hughes, I think it had a kind of, and still has, a kind of unconscious mandate from a lot of people who 
may not want to hear the details and, and may not explicitly assent. And if you tell them, oh, this, this drone strike hit, you know, a wedding procession, they'd be horrified. They'd say, you know, that, that's a shame. On the other hand, they're not bothered enough about it that they actually want their political uh, representatives to be talking about it and debating it. And I think there is a lot of that tacit kind of mandate for the work. So is it essential? It's not um, essential if public opinion changes. It's not, you know, you can imagine an America where these jobs either are eliminated or the conditions under which they take place change. But in the existing America that we have, they do perform a kind of essential role. Specifically with the people who've been involved in operating drones doing the surveillance uh, for drone strikes, what damage does doing that work do to them? psychologically? You know, I was very surprised. The, the military itself has, has done a number of studies that I cite in the book. And what those studies show is that they were trying to figure out why is there such a high rate of burnout in the program? Why is there so much turnover? Why are people leaving? Um, if it's if it's just, you know, the, the stereotype is joystick warriors. You press a button, you don't think about it, you go home. Um, and, and that's chilling in a different way. But that's not what the military found when they did these studies. They found very high levels of moral conflict and distress uh, just from seeing these images of graphic violence over and over again. And if you think about it, being in the kill chain you know, which is which is what it's called, means two things. One, you're making decisions that can affect the lives of your fellow soldiers, right? So you 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 have this sort of view of what's happening, and and actually then have to make the call: can can you go into this area or this building or not? Um, and sometimes it doesn't work out, and 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 you know, a soldier will. That's actually the first thing that bothered and and really upset. One of the drone operators, I, I write about this woman, Heather, who, who was horrified to see that this wasn't always the right call and, and sometimes you know, fellow soldiers would, would die. Um, but, but then there's also the people in the crossfire and thinking you've hit an enemy and then seeing that it's you know, a civilian uh, structure and seeing that there's a funeral through the streets with more coffins than had been anyone had thought were involved in the strike. It, it has a huge uh, psychological impact. And I, and I think it also is compounded by the fact that, you know, we're only going to know in 10, 20, 30 years, I think, what distance warfare actually does, because it's a very different moral calculus, right? You're not yourself under threat. You are actually watching all of this. And I think that on the one hand, society wants that because we, we certainly don't want more casualties in these wars. On the other hand, um, you're giving people, um, you know, as one lieutenant colonel told me, you know, you're turning soldiers into assassins. And, and what does that do? Um, so the, the moral questions are profound. And you're sort of allowing them in a way to play God, aren't you, too? Even worse than assassins. I think that, um, I, you know, I was... It's, it's interesting you say that one of the, the other drone operators I, I write about at length, a guy named Chris Aaron, he's a very spiritual guy. And I think we never really talked in those terms about this, but he described the awakening he went through. And he, he, he sort of, he started out very gung-ho about the drone program, thinking he was getting the bad guys. And, you know, the, the people in his unit were high-fiving when a strike would happen. And he was among them. And and then he went to Afghanistan and he started to question 
the story he'd been told about all the progress that had been made. Um, and he started thinking, actually, things, things are worse now than, than when we started. And that jarred him. And he then went through what he called a dark night of the soul, where he just sort of replayed these strikes and thought, did we really know who we were hitting? Can we really be sure? The grainy imagery and and all of that. So I do think that that you're giving you know these imagery analysts and and drone pilots this power to play God in a certain sense. I wanted to bring you back. You mentioned what the most actually, and there's a lot of horrifying stories in this in this book. But you mentioned the most horrifying story, which is the psychiatric ward of the prison, where the guards are abusive, and it results in this horrific death, um, murder. Can you just explain to give us a little background to that story, and also explain how it eventually came out? Yes. So this is a story, as as I mentioned, Harriet Kriskovsky is this mental health aide. And she uh, arrives at work one day and hears that a prisoner, an inmate named Darren Rainey, has been taken to a shower. And she had heard that he had been in his own cell and smearing feces on the wall. And so initially she, she didn't make anything of it. And then she learns, no, he, he died in this shower. And that the shower was actually a punishment, that the guards at this prison had rigged it up they controlled the water temperature and the flow of the water from the outside. And Rainey, who was trapped in there, collapses. And, and he dies this very gruesome death. Uh, the autopsy suggests burns on something of the order of 90% of his body. So this is abuse really on the level of Abu Ghraib. It's not less severe what was going on there. We today would know nothing about this case and about this abuse but for an inmate, another uh, inmate at the prison named Harold Hempstead, who heard Rainey that night crying for help and who felt himself somewhat responsible for the chain of events that had led Rainey into this situation. And he becomes obsessed with getting the word out and he eventually leaks the story to the Miami Herald. And that's how society learned that that this had happened to Darren Rainey. Um, it's chilling to me, you know, just the details are obviously terrible, but what's particularly chilling is the idea that this could have happened without anyone hearing about it. And, you know, I have since reported on prison conditions in the United States recently. In fact, I, I wrote an article for The New Yorker last year about prison conditions. And during the course of that story, I came across a testimonial given by a prisoner who said he'd been locked in a scalding shower. This was in Georgia, in another state. No one has heard anything more about that. But it just gives you a sense that these things are happening behind the walls of these institutions. And again, to go to the question of essential, I just want to explain, uh, because it, it, it's not necessarily the case in other countries or in the UK, uh, the United States deinstitutionalized its mental health institutions, shut down these sort of large asylums for humanitarian reasons, because the thought was people would be better off getting community care, but the community care was never funded. And what took the place of those asylums were jails and prisons, which are the largest mental health institutions in the United States. And in that sense, we go back to societal complicity. You know, it's not that 
anyone would want what happened to Darren Rainey to happen. It's a horror. But it's that we countenance it and kind of keep it out of sight and out of mind. How do we give people doing jobs that we are horrified by some level of power so that they can say if something extreme and abusive happens? Um, we Obviously, we might not want these jobs to exist at all. But how is there a framework even to be a whistleblower, for example? Yeah, I think that what I conclude in the book is that we owe the people who do society's dirty work the right to be heard, the right to have their stories told. And, th- and that's why I wrote the book. And in that sense, it's, it's a piece of writing and, and hopefully a piece of education about uh, kind of illuminating a, an America that, that is there, uh, but that few people see. There are ways to pass laws to change the conditions in some of the institutions I write about. And I, and I mention in the section on slaughterhouses, I do draw comparisons with Europe, um, not favorable comparisons for the United States, where the labor conditions, the regulations are much more lax. The dependence on transient labor, on um, on undocumented workers who are very easy to silence and exploit because they're worried if they say anything, they could be deported or they could get in trouble with you know, immigration authorities. And I know that, that some of those dynamics do exist in some of the, sort of the hidden job market throughout uh, Europe and the UK. But um, I think that the way to change what these workers experience is, first of all, to have frank conversations about what they do and and who and how they're doing it in society's name. And then secondly, to think about the policies and the laws, the collective decisions that shape both the demand for this work and the conditions under which it takes place. You also in this book take us to the slaughterhouse, and that is a place that lots of people don't really want to think about at all. But one of the things that really struck me is you had a bunch of people who do care about where their food came from, but even those people don't care about the workers doing those jobs. So, you know, the sort of people who want organic food or locally sourced food. How do we make people understand that even if you're buying the the sort of best quality food, you also need to think about the supply chain and the workers involved in getting that food. Yeah, I was really struck by that. And by the way, that point is not lost on the workers. Um, They will tell you, you know, yeah, there are so many consumers who want, you know, chicken and pork that is humanely raised. How about humanely treated workers who who process it? Um, they, They know that this is is less of a concern to a lot of the people who are shopping for you know the meat that's processed in these in these plants and slaughterhouses um and you know i think that the 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 the, the sort of most evocative uh comment on that that i that i heard or actually read came from a a farmer um, who's quoted in the book at one point, um, and he's asked this very question. It's it's at a local farmers market, and and you know it turns out that labor conditions in a lot of local farms in the United States are not that much better than than in these sort of large factory farms. And so this uh, anthropologist asks, you know, well, how come people don't don't ask that when they go to the farmers market? And this guy says, well, you know, they don't eat the workers, and people think about a sense of wanting to be clean and not sort of eat pesticide-treated meat, not um, want to eat something that is has been an animal that's been raised on a factory farm or in the, in the United States, cows that, that are, you know, that are never fed um, grass, that are always just, that are grain-fed and, and, you know, their whole diet has changed. All of that creates 
I think, a direct sense of disgust in consumers. And, and as a result, there's a very large movement in the United States for buying meat that is, you know, for lack of a better way to put it, less dirty, right? That is, that is produced under more humane conditions. But the workers are really an afterthought. They're invisible in all of this. And I, and I think that's actually true of, of all of the workers that I write about. The prison system in America, there's a huge literature about prisons, but almost all of it is about either the policies that led to mass incarceration or the incarcerated people, you know, the men and women behind bars. It's like the people who work there are kind of forgotten. And, you know, as I said, in some small towns in America, the prisons and jails are the biggest source of employment these days. Um, so we have to think about it as a labor issue and as an inequality issue, not just as a sort of policy of criminal justice. Now, your book does look at some people with more privilege who are able to vote with their feet, which would be what privilege gives you. But there are jobs, particularly in the tech world, that would sit very uncomfortably with people that would still qualify as dirty work. Why did you also want to look at those kind of jobs? And what do you think it shows us? Yeah, I, you know, it's funny when I was working on this book, and I told people I'm writing a book about dirty work, uh, or dirty jobs, a lot of people said to me, Oh, you mean lobbyists? Um, or do you, do you mean, do you, mean um, you know, the hedge fund managers who, who just, you know, uh, skim all these profits? And, and so that got me thinking, well, I really have to address this in some way. Why am I not writing about those people? And I did in the end of the book, as you mentioned, there's a, there's a chapter called Dirty Tech where I decided, okay, I'm going to write about people at companies like Google and other high-tech Silicon Valley firms who recently, in recent years, have, have started to come forward and say, you know, we don't feel so good about what we're doing. You know, we were told this is about making, you know, information freely available to the entire world. What a, what a nice mission that is. We weren't told that, that Google would be partnering with the Pentagon to sharpen the imagery on, on drones, actually, um, which is what one of the tech workers I write about was troubled by. So I do think that the moral conflicts are analogous in some ways um, in these higher paying white collar professions. But what you said in the beginning is also very important. There's a different degree of what's called voice and exit that people who work in white collar, high tech jobs or in banking can exercise. They make more money. They have generally advanced degrees and more sort of marketable skills. So leaving or even just not leaving, but saying something to their boss about, you know, how they, they object to this and they don't want to do it. We've seen that again and again, you know, at Google and other companies, these workers very admirably coming out and, and saying, you know, I don't want to do this. You don't see slaughterhouse workers do that very often, and that's because they know they're expendable. They know how easily they can be replaced. So I think there's a different level of power, and this really is a book about power and the lack of power that exists for the people who are, who are delegated society's dirty work. I think it's really interesting as well what you said at the beginning, because when I picked up the book as a journalist, the people I thought of are the lawyers who threaten you when you're trying to report, say, victims, um, you know, their stories and the lawyer you get from the... And I thought that to me is the ultimate dirty work. Now, in your book, people, are, their conscience troubles them. Now, I admit those are going to be the people who are going to talk to a journalist. I can see excuse for that. But are there people who do jobs of whatever kind that we consider dirty, whose consciences are completely untroubled 
by the work? Yes, it's that's a great question, and inevitably the story. You know, my book is shaped by these sort of intimate portraits that I drew of people who, as you know, end up feeling not always initially, but you know, in Chris Aaron's case, the drone operator, he wasn't initially troubled, but he became troubled, and that did afford me an, an entry point into that world. There certainly are a lot of people who, at least on the surface, are untroubled, though I wouldn't say that they are therefore unscathed. There is a difference between those two things, and I'll relay that in an anecdote I heard. I went to a jail in Colorado. This is a part of Colorado that is just surrounded by prisons and jails. Beautiful area, by the way. All, if you go there, all you'll see is you know whitewater rafting and beautiful hills, and you'll think, what a, what a wonderful place to live, and it is. Um, but tucked away in those hills are a lot of prisons and jails. It's one of the hubs of the carceral state in Colorado. And I spoke to this uh, warden at the jail, and I said exactly what you just asked to me. I said, okay, I've talked to some guards who you know, are kind of troubled by what they do, but I imagine a lot of them aren't. What do you say about that? And he said, those are the guys I worry about. And what he meant was, you know, there's this sort of tough, like, I'm not affected by this, but that can lead to what we see in the occupational health literature on prison guards, high rates of hypertension, high rates of suicide, high rates of substance abuse and alcoholism, all of those things. You know, it's when you're in this kind of warlike environment and you see day after day violence and tension, some of which you're trying to avoid some of which you're meeting out. It has, I believe, a psychological toll. And even if that toll shows up in a kind of callousness or a kind of, I don't mind this, that doesn't mean that the person is not scathed by it. And so that's kind of one of the points I make in the book, that that what what we accept on the surface as people not really being affected by this work, we shouldn't necessarily accept. And um, one of the things that strikes me is during the pandemic, the celebration of essential workers was all, you know, uh, in our case in the, in the UK, NHS heroes, more broadly, frontline workers in the health services across the world. Would you like to see politicians engage much more with people doing these jobs? And what could they do? Absolutely. And, and I should say, I, I think I have an allergy to the word hero generally. It's kind of ironic because the previous book I wrote, Beautiful Souls, that you mentioned at the outset is about moral courage. So it's about people who are often labeled heroes for speaking out, for resisting dirtying their hands. But I don't use that term in the book and I don't use it in dirty work because I think that the term is slippery and it's an evasion of the ugly reality. You know, even in the case of nurses, I mean, nurses in the United States right now, the level of distress is extremely high. And I know for a fact from, from some recent reporting I've done that they don't like this term, you know, we're heroes of the pandemic. If we're heroes of the pandemic, Let's look into staffing levels at hospitals that have been cutting staff, right? Let's look into the mandate that they get to, you know, spend no more than five or 10 minutes per patient because they have six or eight at a time. So I think when we hear politicians, whether it's in the UK or in the United States, refer to workers as heroes, the first thing we should be is suspicious. Something is going on. It's not just an appreciation of what they do. Is there anything you think government should do differently? I think that, um, as I said, the first few cases in my book are about 
public functions. You know, the prison system is is a public entity in the United States, even though it's heavily privatized. But ultimate responsibility goes to the public. Similarly, with the drone program, and I think the public officials, at the very least, should be debating and talking about and monitoring what goes on in these institutions, because the out of sight, out of mind impulse begins at the very top, right? And so, you know, in the case of that Florida prison, there was eventually a reckoning and a few low-level guards were fired for what happened, but there was no reckoning at the top, right? There was no um, sort of, uh, in fact, the governor of Florida at the time, Rick Scott, is now a senator and, uh, you know, didn't pay any kind of price. And I think that's another aspect of my book that relates to inequality. I think there's inequality when it comes to blame, that generally speaking, when we hear about dirty work, the blame tends to fall on the shoulders of the kind of low-ranking frontline workers who have dirtied their hands, and very rarely on the people above them in the chain, or let's go even further above to the society that kind of countenanced what, what was going on. And we haven't talked much about oil workers tonight, so I did want to come to that bit because there's a specific thing that I think is really interesting, that those people feel betrayed by the company they work for and they had an expectation that they would be looked after by their employer. How does that, you know, how does that relate to the dirty work element? So I think it, it's it's really central to this whole concept of moral injury that I talked about. Um, that term was actually coined by a guy named Jonathan Shea, a psychiatrist, and he wrote a book called Achilles in Vietnam. It's about Vietnam veterans. And what he said in that book is that a lot of the pain, the wound that these that the veterans he'd worked with many over over decades counseling them, the pain began with a sense of betrayal betrayal by their leaders. Their leaders told them, you know, you were fighting for one thing, and then they kind of came home and realized, whoa, this this was a war built on lies. This, you know, there was no way uh, what we were fighting for was, was going to work out the way we were told. Um, and in a very similar way, I detected that sense of betrayal in this oil rig worker, this roustabout that I profile, um, uh, his name is Stephen Stone, and he worked on the rig that actually blew up and is known internationally because it was the Deepwater Horizon. It's one of the, the, the biggest explosions and um, caused one of the, the most you know, drastic, drastic pollution throughout the Gulf. Um, and um, Stephen, you know, when he took that job, he's, you know, uh, from a small town in Alabama, doesn't know that much about what being aroused about involves, but he sees, you know, the oil industry is flush with money. At least they're going to go all out for safety measures and just and not cut corners. And then after the blast, which he survives, but which several of his crewmakers, uh, you know, do not, uh, he starts reading about, you know, well, what were the safety measures on the rig? And he learns that they were cutting corners all the time. Uh, and that this is actually routine on oil rigs, um, and he gets this sense that they were these guys were expendable. You know, his life was expendable. That, that safety was not a concern, and that sense of betrayal came out in his sort of talking about what he'd undergone. And I think that it leads to moral injury, a kind of different kind of moral injury. Um, 
you know, Chris Aaron, the drone operator, also felt that. You know, he was told a story about Afghanistan that turned out not to be the story of what was really happening on the ground. And what would you like to see change specifically about workers in the oil industry? And what would they like to see change? Well, you know, it's it's interesting. I don't think that um, I say... One, one issue I don't address in the book is, you know, should this dirty work just be stopped altogether? <laughs> or should the conditions under which it takes place be changed to make it safer? And those are obviously two very different things. And I think that if you spoke to people uh, who work as roustabouts or who work on, um, you know, uh, in the fracking uh, industry in, in the United States uh, or elsewhere, you know, they're not going to say, let's, let's shut the industry down. Um, they're going to want safety um, and, and better, better conditions. Um, and that's understandable. And I think that that's at the very least what they are owed. I think, though, as a society, when it comes to the fossil fuel industry, we have to ask a different question, which is how much of this can we actually tolerate on into the future when it is putting the planet in peril? Um, and so there are sort of nuances there that, that I don't explore in detail in the book, but, um, you know, there, are, there probably wouldn't be, there'd be not, not seeing eye to eye with the workers necessarily on that. In the new sort of brave new worlds of tech, there are a whole range of new horrible jobs that you don't particularly look at in the book, but I did want your view on. So the people who, for example, um, are looking at abu for abusive images on social media um, and removing them, that obviously takes an extraordinary toll too. So is it possible that while lots of these jobs could be jobs of the past, things like slaughterhouses, you might think uh, we might replace workers. Um, but are we always finding new kinds of dirty work for people to do? Yeah, I think that dirty work is as old as human history. Um, and, you know, I, I think that, that there is a question that I raise in the book, late in the book, about whether technology will just sort of phase out this kind of work. And, and the drone program is sort of a, a premonition of that in that, you know, you've got these quote unquote unmanned aerial vehicles. Um, but uh, as I, as I note at one point and quote someone saying, uh, that's actually a misnomer because the vehicles, the, the, the drones are not unmanned. They're hypermanned as, as one uh, soldier put it to me, because you have imagery analysts and you have, um, you know, uh, sensor operators, and then the pilots, and a whole chain of command watching what's happening and making decisions about it. Um, so I do think that um, technology will change the form that dirty work takes. I don't think it will necessarily phase it out or let alone alter the reality that there will be jobs that feel sullying in some way. Could capitalism, the biggest question of all, survive without dirty work? It's a great question. Uh, I don't think that capitalism could survive without some form of dirty work um, taking place. I think that's that's you know apparent to me even now. If we look at you know the machines that you know the iPhones we hold in our hands, well, a lot of them rely on batteries that rely on um, you know uh, uh, mining that takes place in Africa under really exploitative conditions. Um, the ion batteries. So I, I think that uh, 
this is a critique in some ways of capitalism and of, of late capitalism and of the sort of moral order that capitalism leads us to. <laughs>